Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host, Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially, what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives. And of course, we want to learn about their core principles of investing. Essentially, a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing. Mahesh Patil is a veteran fund manager who believes in delivering a consistent performance. And to achieve that, he has developed a framework for selecting stocks, which he shares in this very important episode of the Investor R. Mahesh also shares how he assesses the quality of management and how to detect fraud in a company. Listen in. Uh, Mahesh, welcome to the uh, Equity Master Mint Investor R. Delighted to have you on the show. First time uh, that we are speaking, so I'm really excited to know a lot about your journey and uh, your investing style. Uh, To kick this off, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I want to go back right to the beginning. Where are you from, literally? And, you know, uh, about your parents and and the environment in your home with with regards to investing in stocks or mutual funds or post office, etc. Sure. So, yeah, nice to be on this show, uh, Rahul. Okay, so, I, uh, Mumbai, I was born and brought up in Mumbai, yeah, in Bandra, and come from a, a middle-class family. My dad, he was a government servant. Uh, he was uh, working in sales tax uh, and uh, kind of a small uh, family. Uh, he lived in government quarters of Mumbai East and, uh, and went to a convent school. And... My dad, he uh, he was the one actually who, uh, while he was the government servant, but he had some uh, in interest in the stock market. I mean, in, in, in those days, uh, he used to make some investments in some of these future companies like Reliance, uh, LNT. And, and that's where I, I got to know about what stock market is about. But personally, about uh, myself, uh, I... I grew up in a middle-class family, uh, went to uh, college, uh, always wanted to be an engineer because in those days, uh, either you became an engineer or a doctor, right? Those are the only two things you really wanted to succeed in life. So I was very clear that uh, I wanted to be uh, an engineer because um, good at analytical skills, uh, good at uh, math and and I, in fact, uh, had some interest on other technical sites, especially in electronics and computer, though it was early in those days. Uh, this is uh, what I was talking about in 1985. And uh, so I became, uh, I joined uh, VZTI, which is the premier institute in Mumbai, uh, did my uh, electrical engineering, and then uh, worked for a couple of years. And and then uh, decided to really, this okay, to broaden up the horizon, really, right? Uh, because uh, what I thought uh, engineering uh, would be, right, and, and, and the kind of uh, job, but I thought it was better to open the horizon and look at other avenues. So I did my MBA. Uh, I did my MBA from Jamal Bajaj Institute of Management Studies here in finance. And literally, uh, that was a period where India was going through this phase of globalization event in 1992, right? Remember, India went through the major crisis, right? Where you had this widening current account deficit, okay? It had actually, uh, government had to pledge its gold. I mean, the situation was so dire. And that's the time there was big reforms which happened. The first big reforms were uh, the globalization and liberalization which happened. Uh, so I was 
clock in that era where I was uh, in college, okay, doing my MBA. And, and that was an, a market which opened up a lot of possibilities. And, and it was also a time when, uh, when I was doing my MBA, um, while I had some inclination on the stock market because my dad, he was not an active investor, but he always used to tell me about investments, what he had made uh, in the past and how they had grown. I mean, he just sat on those investments. He never really traded on those investments. So I had a brief glimpse. I remember talking about Castro, okay, uh, investment which he had made and how that company continued to give bonuses year after year. And a small investment of just about uh, 50 shares had really grown over a period of time and they continued to pay high dividends. So, so that was an area which always passed but I was really, really exposed to that. It was during the, uh, when I was in uh, college, right? And that's the time when the Harishad Mehta uh, bull run really uh, was in its full swing. And, and that's where actually one got fascinated by, uh, I mean, that was the first taste towards actually investing into stock markets. And, and the kind of gratification, I mean, that point in time, remember the markets really ballooned up in the matter of just six months, okay, it went up more than double. And, 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 and you thought that you were a great stock picker, right? You invested into something and that suddenly moved up and you used to discuss with friends, okay, this is an idea. You thought you're done your own research and, uh, and the, and, and the stock reaction was a function of your intelligence and your knowledge of stock picking. But clearly that was a intoxicating period, which, uh, really got me into, uh, kind of, uh, investing as a career. And that's what I decided, okay, during my MBA, that that's what I pursue and wanted to really get into, uh, investing. And it was very early days in 1993, okay, when I passed out, there was no really uh, any, it was very early days about all these uh, uh, asset management companies. There was only one or two, I mean, UTI, uh, probably SBI, okay, and then some of these PSUs, uh, asset management companies were there. But uh, I, was, uh, I was clear that I wanted to start it from, uh, as, a, uh, as an analyst. And that's what I wanted to really uh, pursue. And and tried to do uh, after my MBA. I mean, I couldn't get what I wanted initially. It was more about uh, getting into um, project finance, right? How do you? I worked with uh, my first job after MBA was in Tata Economic Consultancy Services, which in a, in a way was good because that actually taught about I mean, about how to really evaluate companies, uh, how to uh, do a proper analysis, especially when you are lending to a uh, company, right? How to do the detailed financial analysis of that, and also how to do market surveys, how to really go about in the market and do uh, surveys if you're launching a new product. So, it exposed me not only to uh, uh, the marketing side, really, how to really analyze any new product when you go to the market, how to do market research, but also uh, analyzing balance sheets and uh, evaluating companies for lending purposes. So, so that was an interesting experience there. And, and then I uh, moved out into uh, equity research, right? So that time there were very few firms actually who were doing solid research. So I joined Parak Parik Financial Advisory Services uh, after uh, two years coming out of college. And that's what my actually interest with the capital market started. Yeah. So uh, I just want to go back to your dad's stock picking. So I'm assuming he didn't have any formal education on stock picking, but he seems to have picked up all the right stocks. So I think it was probably easy in those days. You only picked in some of these blue chip companies, right? I default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it was, I mean, Reliance okay, was one which was the most active, okay, where uh, yeah. that was a cult where uh, a lot of investors in those days, 
a lot of retail investors actually okay gravitated towards that. But I think probably it was also his interaction using sales tax, interaction with some of these corporates. Okay, they would have some insights, and he would have just picked up some of these blue chip names. I mean, without any formal research, and just just sat on those. Yeah. So on a lighter note, are you still holding on to some of those shares? <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, they're still been there. My dad's investment, I can never really uh, sold those. So they're still continuing and they continue to really uh, uh, reward, right? Yeah, so, you mentioned all uh, like still around and doing very well, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I think that's the beauty. I mean, if you are investing into a big uh, global multinational company, right? The chances of uh, doing well, I mean, chances of failure are much lesser because, I mean, now we have so many companies coming up with IPOs and uh, many of some of them down the line, we don't even hear their names. But uh, I think if if it's already established company, a global major, I think uh, I think MNCs, if you look at in those days, I mean they were huge uh, wealth created because they had the uh, muscle power. I mean financial power Russell was there, but they also technology and products okay, which they had tested in their uh, in their home markets, and they could really uh, get into India. And India was a growing market. Uh, they had the right management in place. So, so I think those were the stocks which were the most uh, companies which uh, were which had a huge amount of longevity, and and they they they, they continue to grow as the Indian economy grew and really rode on that. And I think this is some point we'll touch on later. Uh, even though they tended to be the more expensive stocks, they still were amongst the biggest wealth creators in time to come. And uh, that is the irony. You didn't really have to take all that much risk to make all that much money in stocks if you just followed these basic principles and you know stuck to the blue chips and did well. Uh, uh, the other thing you mentioned, which, which I found interesting, is you went to college. The uh, you were in Jamnalal in '92. You are you still yeah, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I graduated yeah. in '93. Yeah. So Harshal Mehta had an impact on you, like you said. Uh, everything was, uh, you know. Uh, uh, the first, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is that stat still true that those were the years that India's, the Indian households allocation to stocks was really the highest at some uh, in those uh, bull market years. So uh, there's a lot of interest there. And you, of course, got influence and uh, you wanted to do stocks. How did the collapse effect? Because I think by the end of 92, it was almost over, right? Yes. Yeah. How, yeah. What were your uh, thoughts then? Yeah, so I think uh, that was very early days. I think, uh, and and uh, the whole uh, uh, the whole bull run itself, okay, was so fascinating. And to see this thing, I think they were very small investments, okay, which funded. And I remember investing in some of these infrastructure names because that was the big theme at that point. And then cement companies, some of these, some of these, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some of the cement companies like ACC yeah. and this thing, right? They really went at that time. It was talk about all these asset plays. I mean. I mean, what a replacement corner of asset or whatever. It was all uh, crazy stuff which was going on trying to justify those prices. But yeah, and then there was the huge crash which was there. I mean, I would not say that he was smart enough to really cash into it. But I mean, uh, I think the whole, because since the stakes were very, very small, right? Uh, didn't really uh, do much. But the whole excitement uh, in that period, the journey up and down also created a lot of, um, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, it was... Uh, in, a, in a way, a learning experience. Okay, that uh, I mean, I mean, in early days, if you have those kind of big shocks, right, it always makes you much more stable, right, and and makes it's you much more wiser. You have to pay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
it's all I really believe that market uh, there is always a fee. Any losses you make in the market is a fee you pay for learning. And uh, if you don't learn from that, right? Uh, okay, then that uh, this thing is caught waste. Otherwise, that's an investment which you do, even if you make a loss. So, which was, if I had to ask you and put you on the spot, which was the one thing you took away from the Harshad Mehta spike and fall? What would that be? So, so I think the one takeaway is that, uh, I mean, you can't make easy money, right? I mean, when you, whenever you see that uh, you can make easy money and, and too quick and too fast, then you have to be careful that something is wrong, right? Uh, it can't uh, it be so easy because if that is the case, then, then everybody would be really uh, uh, rich, right? I mean, you don't do anything else. So you have to be careful, uh, be on your guard, and, and 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 try to look at because anything which goes up sharply has to also come down. And you've seen that, not only in that period, but even now also, even today also, that is relevant, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you have to be really cautious, cautious, okay? Question, right? Uh, if something is really uh, doing well, okay, if I'm making investment, they go too fast. Uh, just question the fundamentals over there, right? Because the price, as Warren Buffett says, right? Uh, stock market, uh, the price is like a, is like a, uh, is a voting machine. It's a yeah, voting, it's a voting machine, right? How many people are saying, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. What's the value, what it is. And that is what ultimately it will gravitate uh, towards. So I think, uh, uh, easy money, quick money, I think, uh, even uh, you should be careful, like we have seen recently in Bitcoins, right? A lot of retail uh, investors, a lot of small investors went into that because of the fast returns, what we saw in the Bitcoin space. And then you've seen the cash also over there. So I think that's something which is, is, a, uh, is a learning which I think came in, in in that period. And it happened very fast and very quick. I mean, I've never seen that kind of a quick move and collapse. And and then, uh, which year did you graduate from Jamnal Al Bajaj? This was in 93. 93. And yes. then, I think 93 was the year that uh, the foreigners, at least a foreign mutual fund started talking. And 94 was Morgan Stanley? Or was it 93? Yes. Yeah, uh, somewhere around that time. Yes. Somewhere around that time. Yes. yes. So, yeah. you graduated with ambitions to do something in the investment world. And suddenly, the world looked a lot more different because now the foreigners were coming to India. Yes. And you went to and you joined Parak Parik at that time. And yes. Parak Parik, of course, like yeah. you said, one of the venerable research houses of India. Right. right. How was that experience? And talk to us a little bit about having worked with Parak Parik. I don't think uh, the current generation of investors knows much about him, but he 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 did some great stuff, right? Yeah. So I think that was it was a more of a boutique kind of a research firm house, which was uh, at that point in time there were. Uh, a few of those uh, boutique and they was to be to cater to some of these uh, foreign investors also like there were a lot of emerging market funds which were starting to look at india and and we had a pretty good team uh, we had a research head mr amarnath who was there who had come from idbi he used to be the uh, i think idb that time was a really premier institute right i mean where largest which used to do all this project financing and and he was the one who used to drive our research and that really uh, ingrained me in terms of being fundamental because no matter what theory you learn, actually, okay, when you actually go down and start uh, on the field and doing research, that's a totally different experience. Yeah, you meet companies, you analyze them, uh, you research them, you make your detailed financial models. So, so that uh, I think it was really hardcore research, okay, which really set the foundation of uh, uh, evaluating companies and 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 and. and and looking at it from various aspects, not only these financial aspects, but also from a managerial side, 
and uh, also from the technology side. And and working with Paraguay, he was a classic uh, value investor, right? Uh, always uh, very cautious. Okay, he used to always uh, look at the risks, okay, which were there uh, first. Okay, then then look at the company. Also, uh, uh, at that point in time, uh, we used to have. Uh, he used to also invite some of his uh, influencers or friends, okay, who were into the market, personal investors who had good invest. I mean, they have invested their own money and learned from those experiences. So there was a gentleman, Mr. Chandrakant Sampath, who used to uh, come to our office and he used to also mentor us and teach us. And he used to talk about, actually that model taught us about the value of the intangible values, right, about brands. Like, I mean, he talked about a company. I mean, even if a company is expensive, okay, why is it, is it a good company? Because it has brands, which is a strong mode, right, which you can't really value it in terms of um, in terms of earnings, but that gives you the pricing power, that gives you the competitive advantage, that gives you the uh, ability to really stay in the market and continue to grow. So, so that's what he used to uh, tell us. He used to uh, give us some of these uh, books, right, uh, to read about uh, in investing, uh, basic uh, stuff. So, I think uh, that uh, was also a good exposure, okay, which uh, helped helped me actually, okay, to be able to have a very rounded view. When you're investing into a company, just this financial numbers which you look at, but are other aspects, intangibles which are there, which also finally uh, decides okay why somebody is willing to pay such a price or a premium. And he was a great follower of some of these brand companies and which which are not uh, highly uh, uh, I mean high growth companies or exciting, but they are very good compounders. And and in those companies because of the high cash flows what they generate and and the kind of payouts what they make. If you hold on to the investment for long term, I think you make reasonably good returns. So, so focus on cash flows, looking at those, looking at dividend companies which are paying out dividend and returning money to shareholders. All these things, aspects, okay, were really a part of the learning, okay, which I, I think uh, probably learned at Parag uh, uh, Financial Advisory Services. So, you have two things. One is you mentioned Chandrakant Sampath. So, uh, wasn't he? Uh, popular for having owned large chunks of companies like Hindustan Lever, Colgate, which are brands which are, even today, they are kind of irreplaceable. Right. So, yeah, that, that's again, you know, like, your, like you gave the example of your father, it's pretty similar, right? You yeah. buy big companies which have resources, products, exposure, staying bar, and this is what they do. Uh, you mentioned cash flow, and I think cash flow has become so important it has always been important, but even more so important because uh, if you looked at cash flow uh, also, or maybe as a primary tool, it's a very easy tool to detect fraud in companies or sidestep uh, where there's a lot of window dressing. Yes. So that's true. I think many times you get uh, carried away some of the companies which are growing very fast, uh, the PNL, EPS numbers, but they are not, they're actually burning cash, right? And, and not because. Finally, the value of intrinsic value of a company is a discounted value of the cash flows, right? Free cash flows, because that is the money which is available to the shareholders. So, yeah, so I think uh, not just looking at the profit numbers, right, but looking at the cash flows would give you a good insight into the, what is the actual money which the company is throwing, which is available to the shareholders. And, and I think that, that also helps you to really, as rightly said, uh, looking at all of the window dressing which, which happens and companies actually. Uh, Putting more capital, okay, to generate profit, but not generating enough return on capital, right? So again, the focus on 
uh, return on capital also. Right? I mean, ROC, return on capital employed, which is there, is also very, very important. And 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 I mean, always look at companies which are generating reasonably high uh, return on capital employed over the uh, over the uh, business cycle, right? Because there are certain companies will go through business cycles. So I think those are some of those uh, basic hygiene factors, okay, which one needs to really look at uh, uh, when one is uh, investing in any company. So then uh, mid-90s, of course, was the big IPO boom. Uh, were you, any experiences from there? The, yeah, I think those were the big, I, I remember one stock, okay, Timken India, right? Uh, and this was the one company which I participated as a, as a normal uh, investor, right? And, oh my God, I mean, those times, it used to be like crazy. I mean, the subscription was so huge. And one, I mean, it was like a lottery, right? Okay. You got, I, mean, I remember that. I mean, it was, uh, it would have been oversubscribed by more than 100 or 200 times, right? And, and I was fortunate enough to get that uh, uh, one, one, whatever, uh, 100 shares of that point in time. It, it opened at a huge premium, obviously, later on in September, but that was a period where, I mean, your application forms is to go at a premium. I mean, it was shortage, right? You have to fill in application forms. Yeah. yeah. So, so sometimes you have to pay some uh, premium to get an application form to to fill in, but yeah, that was a crazy uh, period where we saw huge amount of uh, interest in, in IPOs, uh, crazy retail money chasing that, and and crazy valuations also because depending on, I mean, people were just if it was a good company, a great company, uh, a unique company, then everybody wanted to really uh, participate in that. Yeah, yeah. Any any uh, any other recollection? Any learnings from there from the IPO boom? Did you get caught on any one of the stocks? Those. I think there was the NBFC IPOs were also very big those days, right? Yes, they were. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I didn't really get into those NBFCs because I was somehow uh, uh, didn't really understand those companies as well and didn't really see, uh, I mean, how to really value those companies at that point in time. And yeah, there were all these small NBFC companies which were which were there, and and they were also pretty exciting. There were a lot of interest over there, but then I mean, they had a very quick death actually yeah. down the line. But I was always fascinated by companies which were probably more uh, engineering oriented or something had some technology based to it. And, and that's probably coming in from my background being an engineer. So I think you always try to gravitate or look at where you find the comfort, where you understand, or you could relate to it much better. Right. So actually, I mean, my early days, I invested in companies from the engineering issue, very good like companies like Raj or Thermax for that matter, uh, right, and the Siemens. I think these were the companies which were uh, very good uh, in terms of uh, their technology capabilities. Uh, some of these were MNCs, and uh, and they did very well in that period. That was a growth period for capital good companies. Like India was growing; there was a lot of investments which were happening. But uh, fortunately, I didn't really get into these N uh, uh, NBFC boom at that point in time. Really, uh, and good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned something which uh, uh, it's interesting. So you're, do you you genuinely believe that the engineering background that you had has helped you in your stock picking process, especially of companies which where you need to study the technology or the engineering companies? Yes, in fact, I started off my uh, analyst uh, career okay as a capital goods and engineering analyst, uh, along with telecom and probably other sectors like cement. So to sectors like uh, at that point, there was very little knowledge about some of these engineering companies, whether it was Siemens, ABB. And being an electrical engineer, I had probably at least better understanding of their products. What do they make, right? Where, what are the applications? What are the areas where they could really uh, get into? 
and and, and that really helped me to uh, really come out. I mean, I remember when I was there later on, I joined Motilal was for securities, right? In it was in '96, right? And and I was one of the analysts who actually did a detailed reports on Siemens engineering and did roadshows globally, and and that really stood out uh, very well. So, so I think uh, that uh, and, and even telecom sector, which I was looking at also, right? Uh, and there was a lot of this debate about where technology will really play out, right? Uh, I mean, uh, even later on, it was about uh, CDMA and uh, your normal GSM, yeah, GSM, right? With the war which was there. So, so I think that uh, clearly uh, helped. I think uh, in terms of uh, better understanding, because it's not about financial number, right? It's also able to understand uh, uh, what is it, how the technology will play out, what. Uh, or what kind of company advantage it can give to their that company, and, and and how the company is also investing, okay, into technology to really remain competitive and creating new opportunities for itself. So it's not always because see, I think the numbers is always in the price to a large extent. So when you look at a company and look at the numbers, it is always priced in, right? What is not priced in, especially in these uh, engineering capital goods sector, it's about the optionality, okay, what kind of a Growth, which is not there in the current listing, but what kind of a growth could come in, in or the book going forward, depending on the uh, either the uh, I mean the company will be able to introduce some new product or a new product range, okay, which can which is not currently factored in, or or obviously I mean if the economy is also going through a different cyclical phase, okay, that can be a large opportunity which could open up. Yeah. So and also some of these companies also are uh, looking at export opportunities, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of engineering companies in India, because of its strong engineering base, had an export, which is not really captured currently, but if they're able to do that, that provides another optionality. So I think all the optionalities which are there, which are where you get the surprise in terms of stock returns down the line. And that is not there in the deeper, current conventions. Yeah, and you need a deeper domain uh, expertise to be able to gauge that. Yes. Otherwise, you're just reading what the management is saying, but you could actually go one level, two levels deeper and actually understand what's happening. Yeah, I can see that giving an edge. Uh, but there are not many examples of this, right? Where uh, uh, where uh, the really successful fund managers have deep domain experience in sectors. Yeah, am I right in that? Uh, people have, like, for example, yeah, I mean, there is some uh, area where actually you specialize in. I've seen that like in pharma, for example, fund managers, okay. Uh, in pharma, they would have had a domain. So you have one or two domain because of your natural, you might have, you always start a career as an analyst, right? So there'll be two or three large domain where you would have a, a strength. And then as you grow, as you start managing funds, whatever, you start to gain expertise across uh, sectors. But if you have few domain uh, on which helps you and certain market conditions will fall upon, right? Where you can probably uh, have an edge, okay, to outperform. Yep. So... Yep. So I think uh, there are quite a few right who have certain domain expertise, uh, which uh, which helps you to really fall back upon your comfort zone, right? When things are not really really working around. So one area where you could really use your expertise was the whole TMT bubble that happened, 1999, 2000. Yes, in a way. In all a way, about yes. technology, all about you know all the stuff yeah. that is learned in college. How did that play out for you? Were you still at Motilal those days, or you uh, you'd moved on by then? No, I was still in uh, Motilal, okay, uh, until 2000, okay, and then and then in 2000, I transitioned, uh, moved to Reliance Infocom. That's the time when they were 
doing their whole uh, telecom uh, project, right? They were just starting it. So that was just around 2000 actually about just during that bubble. And profit was fortunate, unfortunate. Okay, I uh, got pretty much into the, uh, the, the dot com bubble, yeah, I invested in all these technology names. And uh, and it was pretty exciting again, similar to what Harshad Mehta and some of these stocks really moved up. And but since I was transitioning and moved into Lance and got stuck, I really didn't bother about those investments which I had done. And then uh, then we saw the big crash, okay, which happened. So I think learning is if you don't really follow, I mean, what your investments, if you're not able to track those and follow up what's happening over there, then uh, that can also, uh, uh, I mean, you would not know when things turn around, right? And to be able to move out of that. Yeah. So so that that was a period where, uh, again, uh, on the IT side, people thought you knew a lot about IT and technology and you were investing in some of these companies which were uh, really great companies, but again, there were a lot of froth which was there, and a lot of these companies were not really uh, uh, great companies. They were not really generating cash flows. So, so, so I think you sometimes you think you know, right? And and the market reaction, okay, of the stock, you think that you are properly understand the technology, you understand what they are doing, and and that's what is driving the return. But uh, it's not always true. Then you, then you realize how shallow your understanding is sometimes, right? It's more superficial. You have to really get into the companies and this, which probably we don't do as much, right? Because uh, you're not really uh, into it or you are not, you're investing really from a more a distance, not really analyzing the company and uh, taking a much more closer call. Because I mean, at that point in time, I was not a fund manager. I was just not even an IT analyst. It was just about uh, investing in the, uh, say, the uh, TMP sector based on some basically very basic uh, 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 initial understanding of, of, of this company and what they were doing. You could put your engineering skills and etc. to test at that point. Not really, not really. That was a totally different. IT was a totally different. Do you remember? Case. Do you remember any stocks from then, uh, which you got right or which uh, you think you should have totally avoided? I don't know. I think uh, we got a few stocks. Okay, uh, which was uh, which was right. Uh, right in the sense. Okay, uh, it went a like visual soft. Okay, which was there. Again, uh, that uh, was a company which uh, was doing good stuff, right? But uh, again, uh, uh, some of these companies look too much, give too much importance on the balance sheet and, and other aspects, and and then we saw a big fall. Uh, okay, in some of these uh, these names. Yep. So yeah. Okay. But, and I don't remember there were other names which I don't uh, connect now. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so let's jump straight to 2008. Uh, by then, you joined Aditya Birla? Yeah, so I, I spent around four years, four and a half years at Reliance Infocom. Again, interesting experience. Again, I was, again, after that, doing research for some time, right? Looking at the sector, I thought probably one should get some experience on the corporate side, right? And that's the time there was a lot of lull in the market in that period before 2000, yeah. right? There was a lull in the market and uh, nothing much really happening. And, this opportunity came in uh, with Reliance. And Pokemon, I thought it was interesting because telecom was an emerging sector at that point, right? And I was a telecom analyst. So what better way to actually be with a company which is doing that at the front and trying to redefine the whole telecom space. So that was an interesting experience before that, which helped me to really uh, see a company grow up from scratch, right? In the initial stage, uh, trying to really build the strategy, then go into which, what technology to really evaluate, and then also go to the market right, how to really go to the market strategy and then actually go to launch and execution. So I see the whole journey over there. 
which was uh, fairly uh, exciting. And, and, and then I joined uh, uh, Aditya Birla, uh, Sun Life Mutual Fund uh, in 2005, uh, because uh, that's the time when I thought, I mean, I didn't really plan to be in the corporate set for too long. Probably I said, okay, two years, and then I'll again come back, take some experience over there. But when you get into a company, especially a company which is into its whole, uh, uh, and which is the way I realized that they were executing the whole project, you get caught into a lot of stuff. You move to a lot of different roles. It's not a very defined role. You sometimes got into the initial project uh, evaluation stage, uh, then into the uh, go-to-market strategy, then product uh, uh, product designing, then also later on funding, right? To go and raise money from the investors, you worked on that. So you got involved in multiple roles. And, and and I think once the project was launched, there was nothing much really to do. With that exciting phase is really the initial stage, and that's what I thought. Let me get back, get back into part, investing. Were you yeah. part of the famous monsoon hangava? That yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, we was pretty much part of that. that was the offer, phase. right? Uh, wasn't that the uh, offer that really got those millions of subscribers and changed everything? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. I think. But it was a very exciting offer. That, I mean, that was the defining moment, right? Trying to reduce the cost of ownership of a mobile phone, right? Not only the tariffs, all, but also you could get a mobile phone bundle, right? In that plan of say, 500 rupees. And, and that was a huge response. But again, the challenges and execution was a problem, right? When you get such a large response, uh, it's also about executing how well you're able to fulfill that. And that's where there were some initial challenges in terms of trying to really meet uh, the whole expectations. So, so I think sometimes while you do all the planning uh, and uh, and all the backend, but uh, unless you have really thought through everything, and and if the offer is good, exciting, but uh, if the experience otherwise is not that great, then uh, it, it is not really then yeah yeah and then that leaves a slightly bad taste. But but I think the way we, uh, what I had learned there was about how you can really able to disrupt. I mean, that was the first big disruption which was there in the telecom space. I mean, you have to think totally radical. That's what we I learned at the Reliance Group. I mean, you don't take things for granted. You really want to disrupt the conventional rules and think big. I mean, tariffs, okay, which came down from around 20 rupees down to around, say, what about one rupee? I mean, and that was crazy, right? So, how do you really do that? And how do you then work backwards? Say, if you want to arrive at that, then you work backwards. What should you be your cost? Right? How do you? Procure equipment, you capital, how do you negotiate with your vendors, right? Uh, to bring it down. And then how do you build scale and size to really work? So you all work backwards and then uh, try to attract this. Uh, so I think so that uh, was, uh, I think, a big way of trying to think big, uh, trying to disrupt the market and then working towards that and, and making that change. I think that was. I think which uh, was a big learning in, in the corporate side, okay, when I was working with Reliance. Then, of course, you went to Aditya Birla. And uh, so those days, I was researching mutual funds as well. And uh, was it the Birla Advantage Fund? Am I getting the name right? Those yes, days, that was the fund. Uh, that, and was, that was in 2000. That was in that, that fund uh, prior to the dot-com bust. I mean, that was the largest fund and being the most successful fund which was there, right? The Birla Advantage Fund. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think in the dot-com bust, I think it got stuff over there in some of the stocks and the crash which happened couldn't get out i mean uh, and that was a big learning actually because the concentration which one had in a few sectors was huge 
And in the IT sector, at that point in time, the fund would have excluded almost 60% in IT sector, right? And and that happened primarily because of probably because the stock prices went up. It wasn't really started off that way, but the way the stock prices zoomed up, uh, the concentration increased, and then uh, I mean, one didn't really recalibrate that or try to diversify that or whatever. And and during the crash, there was a big fall. I, mean, I remember the NAV going down below 10 from almost mm-hmm. like 89. It was like 90 percent fall. I mean, that was a, a very big downfall and made a very bad taste to investors. So that was a period from 2000 to 2005 was a period where the mutual fund went through a pretty much um, crisis or uh, from, from the top down, especially in the equity side. And that's where debt came into focus and started being known as a debt fund house. Yep. And when I joined Birla at that point in time, very interesting. I think it was known for the debt. I mean, the whole equity aura which was there had, had gone, right? Uh, what, uh, and that time, uh, the, the like, it was a capital. Capital was a partner. And then Sunlight came in, 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 in around 2000 or so as a partner. So you're right about the uh, advantage part, okay, which was a kind of a, a big name, but it had an equally uh, big downfall also uh, prior to that. So yeah, I think that, uh, that sell-off was a big learning for everyone because that was the first time you realized if you had over-allocated, you couldn't exit the position. You had to you write it down all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, so, so that... Bharat Shah was uh, the CIO even then, or he had moved out by the mid 2000s. No, I think yeah, I think he was the CIO then. I think and then forty years yeah, he moved out after that. But yeah, but I think so. Those are the uh, I think uh, because nobody had seen those kind of uh, in the organized way and those kind of performance. So I think and mutual fund industry was going through its learning phase. I think so. All of, even for me when I came over here in two thousand five. Joint uh, uh, over yeah. for me the big learning was the uh, whatever the global financial crisis right and, okay which was again and a big big one suddenly it happened so, so each crisis actually teaches you a lot right and helps you to really uh, strengthen your risk management uh, processes right uh, which are there but yeah so uh, so we mentioned the great financial crisis. How did that play out for you? By then, you are at Aditya Birla, you are researching stocks. I don't know whether you're still managing money at that time, but how did that play out for you? Yeah, so I think when I joined, that's an interesting time where also they had acquired Alliance Mutual Fund, right? So, Semir Arora. Alliance was another, another debacle. Another successful, yeah. It was a big success. And then, yes. So, so I, I so actually, in fact, we acquired and I started managing those funds because and those funds are a very good, strong track record. Right, they had done wonderfully well uh, with a huge amount of returns, and 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 so fortunately we acquired those funds, right? And by the time I joined in Birla, I started managing it. And some of the Birla funds, because of the, the the past experience, okay, were not we were able to sell them. But the Alliance fund actually, when we got into our fold, and we were able to scale that up very big. Uh, some of these funds, uh, whether it is the uh, an alliance equity fund, which became the Sunlight Equity Fund, uh, the Alliance Balance Fund, okay, which is there, which became the Sunlight In fact, a lot of our funds, okay, in the last 10 years, since then, are the funds actually which we got from Alliance and we were able to uh, scale that up, right? So, I, uh, if I may add, that story is played out twice before in India. The most right. successful Templeton funds came, came from Kothari Pioneer. 
Yes. And most successful HDFC funds came from Zurich, Zurich Mutual yes. Fund. Yes. So sometimes the acquisitions and the track record, I think it, it becomes a big turnaround for you, right? Which you're able to picture with the past and then move on from that. So I started managing some of these funds. I was also, and in fact, in that, those days we used to double up as an research analyst and fund managers. Right? We didn't have a very large team. And, and incidentally, when I joined uh, Birla also, uh, most of the team had left. There was virtually nobody right, on the, uh, on the uh, research that we then had to a lot of new cases had come and the whole team building started in 2005. And that time, uh, a boss supervisor, okay, he moved in as a CIO, right? Uh, uh, he was being an old hand at Aditya Birla mutual fund, uh, who was there in, as a trader, then he went into sales and then came into investments. And that's how the whole team building started at that point in time. And, and we had a very good run in that period until the global financial crisis, right? And, and that's when again, my strength came into play, right? That was a period where a lot of these engineering capital good infrastructure did very well. You remember that, right? Uh, in that, because that was a period, big boom of capex boom. That was a, from 2003 to 2008, or it was a big capex uh, boom which was there. And since I had, uh, and, and I had not managed money when I came in, right? Uh, I moved for the but since you had that comfort zone, and you knew some of these sectors, engineering, capital, legal sector, telecom sector also was doing well. So you could quickly get in and get some quick success over there in the funds. And by the time you learn some of the other sectors like banking, pharma, which are not some of it, so you get time to really uh, understand those. And, and we had a very good run over there uh, until the uh, uh, global financial crisis. In fact, we had launched an infra fund and it was a huge success. Uh, I remember in 2007 or uh, six, seven. But I think. Uh, the whole uh, financial crisis, again, was a, was a big learning, at least for me as a fund manager, right? Because at that point in time, again, uh, while we used to look at risk and concentration as a practice, but uh, still uh, the, the whole risk is not just about concentration, right? Or sector diversification. It's also about what stocks you're investing into. Stock-specific risk, there is uh, uh, stocks which are very highly volatile, or the beta is very high. And and at that point in time, I remember the fund which I was managing, uh, because we had to maintain some of the style bias which was there from the earlier fund with Alliance. There were all these uh, that fund had done well because all the concept stocks which were there, right? So concept stocks are stocks which are uh, like high growth companies, like what you have currently, right? Some of these new age technology companies, or which are very high growth sectors. And and valuing the stocks is a bit difficult, right? But you are you you're really playing the big potential and the big growth which these companies offer. And that's why these companies get have very high PE multiples. And, and in, a, in a good market, okay, they continue to do well. But when the market uh, crashes or when the liquidity becomes much more tighter, interest rates go up, uh, that's where uh, some of these uh, uh, companies, okay, and that and nobody wants to pay for the long-term future only if they're going to come and say five, six years down the line. So, so that, uh, I mean, that's the risk which is there, right? It's not specific risk which you also need to be aware of. Which uh, was not something which we really evaluated or really uh, looked at it. And the global financial crisis, okay, when we saw that big correction, I think some of these stocks were benefited big time uh, and, and really hurt us. Uh, fortunately, I think uh, for us in some other funds, we were uh, looking at, uh, uh, I mean, we started probably raising some cash levels, okay, after the initial fall. And that's probably because of some of the discussions which we used to have internally. Right uh, between our dead team and some macro discussions, not involved in that extent, 
but that helped us to really uh, cut some position, otherwise we would have a uh, very, we got into a hole which we're difficult to come back from. Okay, so, so but, but I think that uh, whole uh, financial crisis, the big learning there was, I mean, not only about risk management, I'll come to that later, but also looking at not, sometimes you just living in a world doing a bottom, but also looking at the macro. That's the first time when we decided, okay, we need to also understand the global macro, what's happening. So the global financial crisis uh, really uh, taught us that uh, all the financial markets are clearly interlinked and what happens in one market can have an impact across the world. And, and that's the time when we decided that it's not only important to look at uh, I mean, individual companies bottom up and the domestic uh, macro, but also to uh, have a good understanding of what's happening globally, how the risk appetite globally is changing. And, and we decided, okay, let's uh, internally start evaluating it uh, and have a process okay, where we discuss what's happening globally. How is the global risk appetite changing? Okay, we also came with a kind of a riskometer, right? Uh, kind of a score which tells us how the global risk appetite is changing. And, and that uh, also, I think, uh, macro analysis uh, became an important part of our investment process, okay, which we now do fairly regularly where we sit with the team. And, and that becomes one of the inputs for us in terms of decision-making when we are constructing our portfolios. And, and I think uh, because of the sharp correction, what we saw at that point in time, okay, in some of our portfolios, the focus on risk management became even more important. I mean, that's more to do with your portfolio construction process. How do you construct your portfolio? Uh, what is the active risk you take uh, in the portfolio at a stock level, at a sector level? Uh, what is the kind of a liquidity risk which you want to run at the stock level? All these factors, I think, uh, became very important for us to look at it. And, and we kind of worked around in a framework uh, in, uh, with a proper policy uh, for fund managers, right, to work within those risk framework and then obviously express the ideas okay, in terms of stock picking. But that whole framework and the which we laid out uh, somewhere in 2010-11, uh, again, based on trying to do some back testing and research, uh, that if you put this control, because normally when you put some controls, fund managers don't like it. They think that if you put this control, then the alpha generation will get impacted. So then uh, we decided, okay, what is the uh, uh, kind of a threshold levels we need to keep so that we can still generate enough alpha, right, uh, to be in, say, in quartile one, right, uh, for without taking excessive risk. And, and, and we then came with a whole uh, portfolio risk management framework. Uh, and I mean, at, at a stock level, for example, uh, the active risk uh, in a portfolio said we should not be more than, say, 4% for mid-caps and 5% for large-caps. At a sector level also, what is the deviation from the sector? We define certain limits over there. And 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 what is the overlap, okay, which uh, the fund needs to have vis-a-vis -vis the benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. A minimum overlap, right, so that you don't take very outside skewed best vis-a-vis -vis the benchmark. So we define those also, especially for the more diversified and larger fund, not so much for the thematic fund where uh, the, the risk appetite is uh, totally different. So I think those are the key learnings, okay, I would say from the global financial crisis. Kind of goes back to your uh, a stint with Parag Parikh, right? Put risk before return. Uh, be sure you've understood all the risk elements, you know, control the downside, I guess, right? What Buffett says, don't lose money. Uh, basically saying, get a grip on the risk and the return will take care of itself. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think Great it's challenge. good for investors also, I think, uh, because typically investors are slightly risk 
uh, worse and on the downside, right? I mean, that's where they want to uh, really yeah. protect uh, themselves. And 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 I think that's also positioning, okay, which we took that we want to want to chase returns. We want to be more consistent in our performance. And if you are okay, if you are there in the say in the quartile two, right? Because normally we look at fund uh, performance vis-a-vis your peers, whether you're in quartile one or quartile two. While aspirationally you want to be in quartile one, but if you are at least there in upper end of quartile two consistently, the longer term automatically you should be in quartile one. And that's the amount of yeah, you take a risk in a portfolio uh, uh, in line with that, right? Not try to really be the topmost fund in that category. I mean, there'll be a few funds where you ought to take that risk, okay, which would be positioned that way, but by and large for the large portfolio. Uh, that's the kind of a policy framework which you would want to adopt. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's fast forward uh, 10 years and talk about the pandemic. How were you positioned in March 2020? And I'm curious uh, to also know, did you guys get an inkling before that there's something brewing in China if you're tracking global and we need to be aware? How did that play out for you? Yeah, so I think uh, the pandemic also, I think it was, I mean, nobody really expected, I think, uh, uh, in terms of what proportions it will lead to. But yeah, there was some kind of inkling, okay, when we start starting here about China, okay, uh, uh, what's happening over there and, and and what could be the ramifications of that. And internally, I think our debt team, right, which we have, okay, they were more uh, tuned to it, right, uh, in terms of, so I think that's where the interaction between doing the macro Right, interaction with the uh, debt team uh, helps us to get certain insights, right? Because you know, the bond market starts to reflect that much early. So we had some in, uh, insights in terms of uh, what uh, could happen and what is the risk, okay, which could it could pan out. But again, uh, doing that and trying to really implement taking portfolio actions is a different ball game altogether, right? So while we didn't increase our risk or whatever cautious, but I think uh, uh, in terms of trying to really make big changes to the portfolio. I think, uh, uh, I mean, we also didn't really uh, fathom, right? Where there was lurking um, fear that, okay, something can uh, go from uh, initial uh, fear of something worse, but uh, uh, but we didn't really take any drastic action, right? Uh, I mean, as, as a precursor, okay, to uh, uh, protect our portfolios. However, we didn't really also uh, try to chase, I mean, try to reduce our risk in a way. We didn't want to increase our risk in our portfolio. Some amount of cash levels, okay, uh, we would have kept, but nothing meaningful. So so I think uh, in that uh, fall, which happened, right, uh, uh, after the pandemic, which came in, obviously everything went down, right? Uh, I mean, that and that period, everything, uh, uh, even the good companies and this thing also uh, crashed because nobody knew what could be the implications of uh, this because the first time people experiencing this kind of a, pandemic. But I think uh, post that, I think uh, uh, a recovery, I think we were uh, pretty clear, I think that uh, that uh, the recovery also will be equally sharp, right? And and the whole stimulus which was being given by the central banks, right? I mean, this time around, uh, looking from the global financial crisis experience, the central banks which were much more prepared, right, in terms of trying to infuse liquidity, yeah. uh, cut interest rates, and, and then we could see that all that liquidity and this thing because can actually reflate the market uh, back, right? And that's where the macro analysis again came into play, right? What's happening? What I mean, this was a kind of a mother of all stimulus, right? Uh, the kind of injection which was done by the, the US, it was almost three times more than what it did in the global financial crisis. 
So then that led us to take a while. Well, things are still bleak. I mean, that time there was a lockdown, corporate profits had uh, come down, but uh, the 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 financial condition became so easy, right? That uh, we thought that the markets could reflate back, and and we actually played out the recovery fairly well uh, in that period. And uh, position in some of the cyclicals, uh, we saw a big rally in the metal space, the IT sector. We were able to uh, play that uh, pretty well because we were tracking the macro, global macro. So you you uh, effectively just rode it all the way down and up. Uh, yes. And then you, of course, made your tweaks based on what was happening, but you literally rode it. And the, and the reason you did not exit is because there was not enough known and therefore there was no point in exiting. Was that uh, one of the key sort of decision-making uh, points for you? Yeah, so I think uh, the CGPK point was that because of the whole liquidity infusion and uh, the cut in interest rates, right? Okay, uh, I think uh, while well, there was some uncertainty in terms of how long this will, this will last, but I think that we thought uh, would uh, lead to a pretty sharp recovery also when things normalized, right? We could see a big V-shaped recovery which could be there. So that was something which was there and that's why we stayed put okay, to our positions. And, and that's the time when actually we could get some good companies at a reasonable valuation. So what is happening that until that period, uh, and that also impacted us actually, a lot of good quality stocks. Okay, if you look at the period from 2000, yeah, I mean, 2018, right? Or 19 till 2000 in the pandemic, it was a lot of these high quality stocks uh, were doing very well. And, and, and the valuation became crazy. It was quality at any price kind of a thing. Because... Uh, that that period, uh, there were other sectors which were not doing so well. So it was only a few stocks, okay, which had very narrow. The market was very, very narrow. narrow. Yeah, yeah. So the quality did very well, and a lot of the quality stocks became very expensive, and we couldn't participate because our philosophy has been slightly growth. We like growth stocks, and these were some of the growth and quality stocks, but a reasonable price. But uh, during this pandemic, when the markets everything went down initially, and and that was a good time to buy some good quality growth stocks at a reasonable price, okay. Though the bounce back also very fast, but we could probably uh, uh, look at some of these names okay, and add, add to our portfolio. So, so I think the market such crisis gives opportunity to really buy good stocks or good quality stocks at a more reasonable price. And that's, I think, what uh, I think one should do because they are the ones who bounce back uh, pretty fast. And, and once your entry price is good, okay, then you can stay with them for longer. Yeah. yeah. Goes back to the whole... Uh... Uh, Chandrakant Sampath thing, right? Buy quality and just hold on to it. Yeah. Uh, over yeah. long periods of time, it yeah. does well. If yeah, I mean, the post-evaluate I mean, and all that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you should also not, I mean, there are many companies, sometimes good quality stores, they go through a phase of quite stagnation, right? It's also important to evaluate and see that whether they are continuing to really, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, in, in line with what's happening around in the market, because some of the quality stores also get disrupted, right? You've seen that classic case is good companies, they don't change or adapt to the uh, environment and they can also uh, fall free to that. So I think that monitoring is still important, but but you are more patient with those names, right? Uh, because uh, if they are doing the right things and and, and they are and focus on the business, I think they'll be able to bounce back. Uh, if the external market is a bit adverse, they'll be able to come back. Yeah. So it's like, uh, was it Narayan Murthy who said that? You know, uh, I believe in God and everyone else needs to come with data. So <laughs> you can believe in all these companies, but keep verifying whether the data is right and whether they're doing the right things, right? 
Yeah. Uh, buy and hold doesn't mean just ignore the stock. You have to still study the stock and be in touch with it and be sure you're doing the right. So, uh, uh, just moving on, just changing track a little bit. Uh, you've, of course, uh, in this in the discussion so far, you've narrated very critical points, right? You've spoken about the importance of the return on capital. Uh, you've discussed on uh, how it's important to look at cash flows. Uh, you've spoken about how just the superficial reading of an annual report can get you into trouble if you look at only the you know earnings per share, uh, et cetera, and the importance of macro and all that is coming over time. So talk to us uh, uh, on, if, if, uh, if I ask you, uh, your, what's your stock selection process as it stands now? How has it evolved? And, uh, and it's working the way it's working, which is very well. So how, how, do, how do you go through those steps and zero in on a good stock? So I think uh, it's a combination of, uh, again, uh, some amount of top down in the sense, uh, looking at the opportunity, right? Uh, where the company, what space a sector it is, and what is the opportunity size over there, right? Uh, if it is a uh, uh, growing sector, right? Uh, the opportunity size is big, uh, then uh, you are okay to really uh, look at that company and buy it a bit expensive also, right? Because there's a long, long longevity of growth. But normally you would look at a uh, sector, okay, which is, uh, probably uh, uh, growing at a faster pace than the overall GDP growth, right? That's what you, that, that's the style when you're investing into slightly growth stocks. And that's what normally we prefer, right? Investing into uh, growth, se uh, growth sectors. And you don't then, like paying a premium for growth, a little bit of a premium for growth. Yes. You have to do that. Uh, yeah. uh, how do you decide what premium to pay? Is it like you can see there's visibility? Uh, what what goes into that decision making process? Yeah, so I think uh, in that you have to look at uh, what is the uh, opportunity, right? How the market uh, is likely to grow because either it could be underpenetrated market, or or there could be a large opportunity with the companies trying to like a retail company, for example, right? Uh, move from say unorganized to organized, and then try to uh, not just look at next three years, but at least try to say look at the next five years or whatever period you can explicitly forecast that and then try to discount those back. I mean, DCF is one way to look at it, but DCF is prone to a lot of errors and a lot of assumptions which you make, right? So you try to look at as far as possible you can in these companies right. and then discount it forward. It can be next five years, eight years, 10 years period, wherever you can uh, forecast those numbers explicitly. And when you're looking at these growth elements, uh, you like you mentioned, uh, uh, did you mention formalization? Uh, 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 organized to unorganized. Uh, unorganized so, to yes. so, so you're basically uh, looking at trends which are irrefutable, uh, which yeah. are like mega trends which are follow, uh, which are happening in India. You can see it all around you. It's just a matter of saying at what pace that will happen. So you're trying to write that opportunity and you're saying, because this is not a company specific trend, this is a macro trend. Uh, and if I have the right stock, I don't mind paying a little more because that growth is not totally uncertain. It's a little bit more certain because it's a macro trend. Yeah. Am I, am, am I kind of there? Yeah. Okay. What you're talking about is for some of these high growth companies. Okay. But normally, traditionally, you look at uh, companies, okay, which are uh, either growing faster than the uh, than the market, right? Any particular industry, because okay, that's what most of the companies will be. You will not find many companies which are there in these high growth uh, sectors, right? But your traditional uh, stock picking approach would be to look at companies which are probably growing faster than the industry because that's where the value creation will happen. And 
And the faster growth will come in either way because they're taking market share because uh, probably they have got some competitive advantage, okay, which they have, or the advantage can come in from technology, product, distribution, or cost competitiveness, right, which is there. There should be some kind of a moat which should be there. Which they're will be market share. They're gaining basically market share. Yeah. And, and that could be on the basis of either a good product, okay, some technology advantage you could have. It could be a cost advantage in the commodity space, right? It, if you're a lowest cost producer, then you'll always survive and you can always continue to grow and expand, right? Even when the uh, when the commodity prices are down. Or it could come from the distribution strength, right? Uh, which could be a, a mode. So there should be some uh, element of strength or competitive advantage, okay, which is a strong mode, which will give you the extra edge either to gain market share or a better pricing power in the market, right? And the better pricing power means that you will get better returns than, than your competitors or better margin or return on capital. That is something which I think one uh, could look at uh, as a part of the, uh, the whole investment process. And then uh, look at whether the company is generating first uh, enough return on capital for the, uh, or, or the business cycle. I mean, higher the better, but at least there should be a certain threshold, say about, say, I mean, say about, about 15% or 18% return on capital. And uh, so that are some of the screeners, okay, which uh, you would run. And then uh, you look at the management. I think management also quality is important factor, okay, which over a period of time you realize that uh, that is again intangible, which is there, which can have a lot of bearing in terms of the long-term returns of the stock and also trying to avoid mistakes uh, because betting on the wrong management and where there could be properly You've seen that, right? Uh, what happens to some of the stocks. Yeah. But more important, so the management evaluation also is very important and have a, we try to build some framework around that. Okay, how do you evaluate management? Looking at uh, not only some which are uh, uh, tangible numbers disclosed into financials, but also some intangible stuff. Okay, what fast track record of the management. But I think management is, from our perspective, I think what we're looking at is also management, how well they are, how with, with their visionary management, okay, they can have the a vision to really able to transform the business and take it to the next level. Okay, if that is the case, then yeah, uh, uh, that can uh, mean that you really have a big winner at your hand. Also, how the management uh, does capital allocation decisions, right? Where they're allocating capital in the right way in the right areas and not trying to, well, a company might be making good cash flows, but if the capital allocation decision is not good, that means you are actually putting good money after bank, right? Yep. And then uh, basic corporate governance issues. So all these factors are also important in terms of trying to decide in terms of what kind of premium you want to pay. And that's why in the marketplace we see, right? There are few companies which are having uh, similar growth rates, uh, similar return ratios, uh, probably, but their multiples are different, right? And that's where the management quality uh, comes into play, right? Uh, because historically, companies which have demonstrated, right? Uh, market tends to be a higher uh, multiple to that. So that's something which you try to build into your uh, stock selection process and and then finally it comes down to the valuation right because uh, then you have to also to buy the stock at the reasonably you might not get it necessarily cheap but at a reasonable price for you to make uh, reasonable returns right over your uh, investment uh, horizon period especially good company at a fair price is better than a fair company at a good price that's what you're saying yeah 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 that's right because over a, over a longer term you want to be into good company because see there could be a stock which could be a mispriced at a particular point in time, right? And you can get that delta, okay, you buy that stock and you play that out. But uh, if it's not a good company and not able to compound, the long-term wealth creation won't happen. Yeah. And normally you want to buy stocks, not just to buy, well, you always play some of those 
tactical trades, stocks which are undervalued, and try to play those whatever uh, uh, catch up with the valuations kind of a trade. But ideally, you want to buy and hold on to a stock, right? So, so you buy that stock and then allow it to compound over over a period of time, so that you don't want to you don't want to sell that stock right once you're bought in your portfolio. Uh, so that's, I think, where uh, it's important to understand the uh, long-term uh, growth prospects of the company and, and management also, how is able to drive that okay, through the various market cycles and, and also has the vision, especially now in a period we are seeing that uh, a lot of businesses are getting disrupted right, uh, because of technology, uh, startups. So how the company is able to really manage that or visualize and keep the company ready, future ready. Uh, so that you have a long longevity. So, so just to recap your process, you're buying companies in a let's say a sector you want it to be growing faster than its peers, have better metric for whatever reason, uh, you know, cost control, supply chain, distribution, etc. You want companies to have a good return on capital employed across a business cycle. You're looking for management quality, which you articulated very well on how you can assess, and you and valuation, of course. Uh, 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 two, two, two points I'd like to make on valuation I like the way you say it that uh, you can get a mispriced stock at some point in time but uh, it may be uh, but you still want to buy a good company and ride it over a long period of time and compound with it as against just chasing a pop which may come because of a mispricing because you know you could end up with any kind of company on the very right. quality I, uh, we had a guest on the investor hour some time back and he said he had notes of management for 20 years. <laughs> so uh -huh. when, he would, when he would meet them, he could literally verify whether they're actually doing what they have said over long periods of time. And that he was trying to explain his framework on right. how he assesses management quality. Because I think everyone talks of management quality. Very few people can articulate it. And I'm so happy you, 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 know, you spoke a little bit about that on how you should do it, how you should assess you know, have a vision capital allocation, which is, I guess, one of the biggest decisions, most important decisions the management makes. So, uh, so, so yeah, this is a pretty tight process. Any other element to it that uh, you'd want to add or uh, which could also be considered in the stock selection process? So I think this is for a traditional company, which is there, right? And then it comes out to some of these high growth companies, the new age companies, right? Where it will be a bit different, right? Where uh, it's difficult to really... Uh, uh, really make an assessment based on pure numbers, right? Because they are not really numbers which are there, right? Where you can look at return on capital, where the companies might not be making uh, real uh, profits at this point in time. So there, uh, it's a slightly different where you have to really look at uh, more into the future. You have to uh, look at uh, in a different way, right? I mean, just to give you some example, like a new age company, like for example, Zomato for that matter, right? Or uh, or, or, a, or any other company like Nike. So there uh, you would a want to look at what is the total addressable market? How big is the target addressable market? Because these companies are coming in with some disruption and trying to gain market share, right? And disrupting the existing players. So what is the big addressable market? Well, that is the big picture because currently they might be still be small but and, and losing money, but uh, what is the total addressable market you look at? Then you see where this company has got certain uh, already established certain uh, unit economics in place while they will be losing money in the market currently because they are growing right so they are putting money for growth in terms of advertising or customer acquisition 
but have they got a model in place at a unit level if they stop growing or they reduce their growth rate are they making reasonable returns right on uh, on, on their investment or at the unit level so so if if they have done that right and establish and when they have established already a leadership because uh, uh, that is very important in this space because uh, only one or two companies really uh, do well, right? In the, in the UH tech, in a particular sector, because scale and this thing is, is very, very important over there. And whether the competent intensity is also in place to a large extent, because if that is still not established, then the company will continue to burn capital. So, so then whether all these factors are, are in place, and then obviously. Uh, whether uh, you see the road to profitability, okay, because if the unit economics are in place and the profitability is in place, then you can uh, look uh, into these companies, say, uh, over a period of, see, uh, earlier, sometime back, people used to value these companies purely on sales to sales multiple, right, revenue or whatever, EV per revenues or some other multiples. But I think we would wait for companies to really reach that at least inflection point where we can see profitability and then try to project the profits, say, for the next, say, five years or eight years and then discount that and, and then value it. And here also, also the management is very important because here uh, uh, the initial promoters, right, who are driving these businesses, what is their skin in the game? Uh, what is the kind of a vision they have? Because they are the ones, actually, these companies are very, very fragile in that sense that, um, it's too much dependent on that individual, right? Because uh, they're not a traditional companies, right? Okay, which have got a very established kind of a management team processes. So, so I think betting on those promoters also uh, and trying to understand, I think, is, is pretty important in terms of what is their vision, how they are trying to drive this. So that's a different ball game for looking at some of the new age technology companies. You know, it reminds me of Amazon. Uh, one of the reasons Amazon loses money is because they reinvest so much in their business. So if they want to turn profitable, they can just slow down a bit and they'll start making money. So the point you were mentioning, the unit economics is such that they're profitable, but just that they're reinvesting it and uh, chasing growth. So that's a business which is just got to prove it's it's kind of a proven business model, and you have to see whether they can sustain that as against a business. Now uh, I can take this name because we're talking of an international company uh, as against a business like Uber where they were losing money right, right, I'm talking about ages ago, the unit economics was also a loss. There was no profit at all. Right. And losing then even more money in the growth. So that was like a big, uh, it wouldn't fit any model. That was only a dream of addressable market and whether they will get there and somehow they'll figure out to make money. Uh, right. Do right. it along the way and make money. And... Uh, and be that as it may, they they entered various other businesses and which kind of did some money, made some money for them, right? Deliveries and all that. Yeah, yeah. So I think those, those kind of investments are for very early stage investing, right? People are able to take the higher risk and bet on a multiple lane. You bet on multiple companies that something will work, right? But uh, when it comes to us, really, when you are putting a public money, okay, into our fund, I think we would look at companies which we think have really all those parameters in place. And then... Looking at valuation, right? And what is a reasonable price to pay? I think that's how I think uh, we would do our stock selection process in these uh, high growth companies. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about portfolio construction. Now, I I know uh, I'd like to ask you personally as against a fund manager because in a fund I know there are all those uh, criteria that you all follow. But when you're doing when you're thinking of how an individual should construct their portfolios, how many stocks, 
how should they weight it? How should they size the positions? Any thoughts on that? So again, again, it uh, depends on individual. Okay, their risk appetite, their ability to really monitor. Okay, uh, the stocks. But I, I would say that uh, you. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think you should invest into companies if you are directly investing into it. Uh, companies where you have a decent understanding of those companies, right? You have some way of tracking it and knowing their businesses, not just based on hearsay, right? Somebody would recommend it. Many people do that. I mean, that's fine. But at least have some understanding and that can only happen in a few days, right? You can't have at the individual level the breadth to look across, right? And you don't require so many companies, right? Because, uh, I mean, in a large fund, okay, you need to deploy a large amount of capital, right? And you need to diversify to that extent. But I think at the individual level, I think you can uh, possibly uh, have a much more slightly concentrated portfolio. I don't know what is the right number of stocks because invariably what happens is a lot of buy small, small stocks over a period of time and because that. But at least tail, tail yeah. could be there, but a core portfolio, right? Okay, uh, uh, I mean, it can be say 20, 25 stocks, right? At max is what I think uh, would be an ideal kind of thing or even, even lower for that matter, right? Because if you look at it, uh, it's only the few stocks which make big returns, right? I mean, out of that, there'll be five, five stocks which are given exceptional return over a period of time. Pareto principle, 80-20, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, sticking to your winners is very important, I think. And that's, I think, the biggest learning here, which I see, right? Uh, there are some stocks in your portfolio which can be huge, huge multi-packers. And normally, uh, you have a mindset of trading, right? If you book profits, right? If it's you made it, your double does the same return, then you would normally uh, want to sell that stock. Right? And then the problem is that you need to find something better, right? To be able to really replace that. But it's always better to continue with that same investment. So holding on to your winners and being patient, sometimes they become expensive, but as long as they're delivering and 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 uh, delivering what they are supposed to do, uh, there's no change over there. I think it's you should continue to uh, uh, hold on to those. And, and that's what I've seen in my portfolio. Sometimes I've seen that lazy investing, you invested in stocks, right? And and over the last, if you go back and see over 20 years or whatever, there will be generally a huge amount of uh, returns over there. That's right. So so I think first principle is to try to be in stocks okay, where at least you're able to monitor them, at least understand a bit, right? So that restricts your number of stocks or uh, areas where you could invest into. Probably around, say, around 20 odd stocks. Uh, then uh, trying to really hold on to your winners, not sell it, because then you have to find something new, right? Which might again require a lot of, lot of effort. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and 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 yeah, I think that's I think uh, I think the basic principle to some amount of rebalancing uh, can be done, okay, uh, to some extent, right? Because something goes up quite a bit, uh, you can take out some money and rebalance that, but. I think at the individual level, you can still take that kind of risk. Like the portfolio, when you're managing a large portfolio, it's, it's much more important because you are now looking at relative returns also, mm. right? Vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, say, the, uh, uh, the benchmark or peers, you have to manage that aspect also uh, fairly well. The individual doesn't have that uh, challenge. Yeah, individual doesn't have that distinct luxury. And I mean, so that in that scenario, there's some amount of concentration if it happens in a few stocks because of performance. As I said, not to sell the winners, I think that's something which I think one can still afford to uh, take some kind of latitude over there in terms of the uh, concentration. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, when when to sell a stock? 
what what is a trigger that you should exit a stock? So trigger to exit a stock will be uh, uh, I mean two things. One is uh, if there is a change in the hypothesis, okay, fundamental hypothesis which you have uh, bought a stock. Right? If that has changed, then uh, I think uh, it's important to really evaluate critically and see whether you need to really uh, uh, own that stock or need to sell. Or I think that there is some big uh, uh, change which has happened, disruption, okay, uh, which has happened, uh, which is happening in a particular space, and the company is not able to really adapt to that. If you're able to see that, that could be another reason, okay, uh, to sell a stock. Or it could be uh, some large corporate governance issues, okay, which could which could come up, right? Management again, focus on management quality because if that uh, is something which comes up, then uh, uh, it's best to really uh, exit because that will continue to haunt you. Right and affect uh, the stock, and it starts to affect over a, over a period of time. So I think these are the three reasons, okay, where you would want to sell, uh, not necessarily because the stock has become expensive, right? That could be a reason to trim down your holdings, right, or to rationalize a bit, okay, and take it down. Yeah, you preempted but, my question. I was going to ask you that: that do you sell because because it became expensive, and that actually flies in the face of do you hold on to your winners? Yes, you should hold on to your winners, but you can always like moderately trim it over time. Uh, because, you know, the other thing that you, the, the thing that you mentioned is there's a reinvestment risk. The other thing is if you keep selling your winners, you're only going to have the underperformers in your portfolio. Yeah. Right, <laughs> that's right. terrible. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that's a very tricky question. Okay. When do you sell? Like I mean, stock becomes very expensive, right? Uh, it could be like we've seen during froth or bubbles, right? Stocks. But as long as... Uh, the company is still fundamentally okay delivering on what it is, right? There could be some adjustment which could happen. So if stocks become expensive, there could be a period where it will go for some amount of consolidation, right? Where it particularly will come back, right? So that's okay. At least you will not uh, really, uh, uh, I mean, you will not really lose big money. Okay, it might get into a consolidation phase, which is which is fine because you have made some good returns. But uh, I think selling too early. Just exiting a stock because you had you didn't really see the uh, the big picture, right? Uh, and you were excited. Okay, we got made twenty percent. I made hundred percent return on the stock, and you exited. I think uh, looking back at times, okay, you would have said, "Okay, wish I would have held on to that stock." Okay, my last couple of questions, uh, and one of them, I last three questions probably. Uh, you want I, I, I typically ask my guests, "How do you detect fraud in a company?" is becoming more important with every passing day. You've already spoken about the importance of cash flows. Uh, any other like test you run through to detect fraud in a company? So I think what you should do is also, I think not just look at the numbers, but also look at the whole ecosystem, right? A company, okay, there are suppliers, okay, who are there to the companies, right? Or the company could be selling its product to some other uh, the players. So you do, do some kind of uh, checks, okay, with your ecosystem partners in terms of just to verify whether some of the sales what they are reporting are really uh, that okay where there is uh, enough so you can get some lot of feedback also right when you talk to the partners or the suppliers distributors which are there well, what are the practices the companies are following some of them ethical or unethical practices which are there so i think that is uh, one amount uh, one amount uh, one kind of a check okay which can help you to detect if there is some kind of a over invoicing, over reporting, or some kind of a fraud, uh, which which could be there. So I think channel checks are also important uh, in terms of trying to verify certain details, which 
probably not there. I mean, balance sheet obviously is something which you run through and look at some of these ratios, okay, which can uh, talk about like cash flows, which you talked about, or or even on the working capital side, right? How it is, how things yeah. are getting locked over there. So I think uh, that is, I think, another uh, way of trying to gauge some kind of insight yeah. in terms of there are any flaws. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thoughts on asset allocation. How do you allocate your own personal assets? Uh, property, gold, stocks, stocks and funds together. So because it's nearly the same thing. Uh, so I think, I mean, I try to keep it very simple. Okay. But I mean, I would not advise that everyone because uh, I mean, most, I mean, between debt and equity, if you look at, right, uh, most of it is in, in equity because over a longer term, I believe that, uh, I mean, equity, and since you, you know, right, you know the risks what you're taking uh, and you've seen market cycles, I think bulk of it is, besides for what you require, say whatever you require for the next, say, uh, say three years, or if you have some large commitments, okay, which you want to keep aside, I think that money definitely you should keep into, say, uh, fixed income. And there are uh, various, not just into bank deposit, but there are a lot of good products on the uh, fixed income side or on the uh, debt mutual side, okay, where you could put in, where you can get the benefit of indexation also, right? Thanks benefit, which is there. But beyond that, I think uh, I would tend to put everything into equities, okay? Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about real assets, okay? That is, that yep. is something yep. which is different. Yep. But, but I think it's also important to have a certain real assets, okay, because uh, that gives you some amount of uh, comfort and and you're able to, uh, if you're able to get something, uh, real assets at a price, okay, normally you can, uh, unless you want to buy for consumption, but real assets, you can time it, okay, when the markets are down, right? Like, for example, if you're buying property, I mean, it's not necessarily to rush in to buy as, as an investment, when I'm saying, but every asset class goes through cycles, right? We've seen that across, whether it is equity, whether it is uh, property, whether it is gold, and and try to play a bit contra there. Okay. Uh, right. So especially even investing into property, uh, when it is going to a down downturn, and uh, when 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 the uh, uh, when the prices okay are be fairly attractive, or when interest rates are, are low at that point in time, that's a good time to really uh, invest into real estate because and that's the point in time where you can actually not necessarily uh, sell okay your investments and buy that you can and normally in downturn interest is also very low you so can you can actually take advantage and take leverage right uh, to be able to at that time uh, you might not want to liquidate some of the assets because they might also be going through that downturn right sometimes when the economy is down your equity is also down property market is also down so i would normally uh, try to play count uh, uh, cyclical over there right okay uh, be a bit contra uh, buy when uh, the assets uh, class is going through a particular down cycle. And in, especially in property, for example, if you are able to leverage that, right, and when the interest rates are low, you can take that leverage and then at the appropriate time, try to use that. Right? Uh, so, yeah, so I think, uh, and gold is something which normally I would not, I mean, uh, I mean, you can have some investments over there, but uh, very small. I don't have much fascination for gold. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it can be, I mean, normally as a part of an asset allocation, we always say that at least around 10% can be into gold. It's a good hedge. So, yep. so gold, gold is a good hedge okay, during crisis because that's where it appreciates. It gives a good stability to the overall portfolio. If you look at Does that view on gold uh, go down well at your home? 
about not having much cold. <laughs> so, so whatever you require for consumption, right? Yeah, okay, if you are jewelry, whatever. I mean, that that is fine. Yeah. But uh, as in investments, normally somehow I have not been able to really uh, uh, had a lot of fascination for gold or whatever because I don't know how to really place that. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, gold. Yeah, I, get, I, I get that. Yeah. But gold also, you can play it slightly counter cyclical, right? I mean, it also goes through its own cycles. Over longer term, we've seen that gold has given around uh, kind of a nine percent kind of a return, right? Ten percent return. So, which is uh, which is also uh, uh, not bad, okay? Looking at what you could get into, say, the fixed income side. But I would make it simple. Keep it uh, equity, large part of your financial investments into equities. Right, uh, and apart from what you require over the next three to five, five years, I think that can keep it liquid and everything. And the rest, buy property, okay, during down cycles, right? And yeah, and and and, and try try to not necessarily dip into your uh, investments okay, yeah. when both the cycles are down, and take some leverage and then repay that out. That's a that's a that's a great idea. Uh, you have children, uh, one kid. Yes, kid. yeah, I got two kids here. Yeah. How are you teaching them about money? So, or have you been through the cycle or you're in the cycle? I don't know where you, uh, with regards to your kids, about teaching them about money. Yeah, so, I mean, teaching them about money is, first of all, uh, trying to really manage their own expenses. So, giving them some independence, right? So, giving them some money, okay, uh, so that they know, okay, what to spend, okay, where to spend, okay, what is the value of money, I think, is something which uh, is one one can start off with. And giving them a budget, right? Uh, that this is the amount which I'm giving, right? Uh, this is the amount you need to spend. And then, then they can take their own decisions, right? What is rational? Okay, they need to value, okay, what, what they are spending money. Otherwise, if money comes easily, okay, then uh, the value for that doesn't really uh, come in. So, so they need to appreciate what price they are paying for a particular good or a particular service, whether really they get the value out of that, whether it's necessary really at that point in time. So giving them some budget, but that is the initial years. I think as they can grow older, Right, and uh, I think you need to give them some exposure, right, uh, to uh, investing, uh, e either into uh, uh, say mutual funds, right, for example, because uh, directly investing into stock is not necessarily always an option. Like for example, uh, being into the fund management side is not something which you can have the liberty to invest directly into stocks. But uh, I think, uh, uh, and there are various other ways, right, uh, which you can. Uh, Teach them okay to start making some investments, small investments, uh, and and if you start early, right, and that's the beauty about uh, investing and the power of compounding. The earlier you start investing uh, into uh, whatever equities, uh, the uh, better it is because the power of compounding. Okay, uh, if you see, uh, like for example, if you invest something uh, early at the age of say where your first when you start getting your first paycheck, right. Which could be the age of whatever, depending upon 23, 25, whatever. Then you have almost like next 25 years, right? Uh, uh, to put that before, or 25, 30 years. And uh, if you are able to, I mean, invest in equities, uh, and I mean, if you are able to compound your thing at 20%, then uh, over 25 years, that one rupee can become 100 rupees, right? And that's a power of compounding. And, and many uh, people start to invest much later. Like initially, your savings, what you have, what do you want to spend that? And that's normally when you're young, you want to spend that in a lot of luxuries or whatever. That's so, the idea. Yeah. So I think but you should start making even small investments at an early stage. 
I think that will tell you, okay, the, the power of money and the power of compounding. And, and, and you can, obviously you will make some mistakes also, okay, when you are investing, but uh, you learn that early in your career rather than later, right? When your stakes are much higher. And you know what happens is if you don't start early and you see people who started early starting to make money, then you're tempted to correct that mistake. And unfortunately, people try and correct that mistake at the top of a bull market. Right. That's the time they're everything, they're open to all ideas. And that's where wealth's lost. So on a lighter note, you said you give your children a, a, a budget. Uh, are they running a deficit or a surplus? <laughs> it doesn't matter really, actually. As long as, okay, uh, you control that, right? Okay, yes. what amount, okay. And they'll also revise make a revise budget. Revise estimate, revise budget going on. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, any thoughts on giving away wealth, charity, etc.? What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that is, uh, I think, equally important that uh, down the line you start uh, whatever uh, initially you are uh, trying to create wealth. Okay, that's what it seems because you don't know what how much is enough. But I think down the line, I think it's important to, okay, once you have enough okay to take care of your needs okay then uh, to give back to society and and give i think it's important to do that i think uh, everybody needs to contribute uh, only thing is how do you have enough time to see that uh, what money you're giving out okay is also going in the right direction right so you need to have some time or some oversight on that uh, is also very very important because it's your hard earned money and you want to go into the uh, in the right area the right causes right which are there so i would say that uh, uh, I mean, individuals would have a different kind of a philosophy over there, but I think say around 10% at least huh, of your uh, incremental listing is something one should start looking at in what ways you can start contributing and giving back uh, to society. And if possible, uh, try to increase that. But at least that is uh, something which I think as over a period of time, okay, once a lot of responsibilities and other things which you have taken care of, I think uh, I would definitely uh, advise and uh, and start looking towards that, I think, uh, because I think beyond a point, uh, money has only limited value, right, for you, right? But if you're able to really give it back and help others, I think that gives a lot of satisfaction and joy. And and if you're able to relate to a particular cause, right, and work towards that, I think you can uh, probably get much more satisfaction. If you don't mind my asking, any particular cause that you are close to and that you're work, working with and helping on helping with yeah so i'm actually trying to still uh work on that but i think uh especially for old people right okay okay old age people because that's where uh some of these people require a lot of attention and that's one cause okay which is there right uh cancer again on the other side okay cancer is something which is uh in an area which is i think there are a lot of patients okay which are in fact are not able to get the right uh kind of uh treatment so that's another cause, okay, which I would, uh, which I am pursuing. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for sharing some personal stuff. Thank you very much for that. So, uh, my last question to you: uh, Talk to us uh, about, talk to us about how much you read, what you read, and what you would recommend to our viewers to read. I think uh, reading again. Uh, I mean, ideally, I would like to say at least read one book in a month, but it's not always possible, right? But earlier, I used to read of fiction, but I think now I try to read a uh, lot of stuff which is much more topical, uh, some autobiography, something uh, which inspires you. And 
at times also some interesting books on investments okay which uh, is always uh, interesting to learn okay from uh, investors okay from their past experiences uh, and so those are the things which normally uh, i would try to try to read but nothing in, in particular something which really excites you or what you find uh, engaging uh, is what i would i would look at uh, nowadays i read less of fiction okay that was is earlier but i think it, it all depends on individual choices right what you want to do. I mean, for an investor i think uh, you can start off with a lot of uh, books down which are there right which would give insights and again uh, investing principles what was relevant there 50 years back is relevant even today right so so learnings which are there in markets they don't really have changed the behavior of people doesn't really change much so so a lot of uh, books on behavioral side okay which uh, i would like because that's where you need to uh, uh, also uh, shape up right so so that, those are the books which normally i would for uh, but again it's a vast uh, diasporia i think each one needs to find what he's comfortable what he likes and reading is sometimes also past it not necessarily yeah. just to always gain knowledge right it just a kind of a, a keeping yourself engaged and some kind of a distraction from a normal day to day work which you do sure and uh, uh, related to that because you mentioned macro and global macro earlier uh, do you track uh, global media any global publications you stay in touch with just to get that input on what's happening around the world at a little more granular level so i think being at a position where i am there i think there's a lot of stuff which you get right across so so there are like for example uh, there is a bca which is there right a report okay which we get which gives a good insight in terms of a uh, global macro what are the global trends what are the asset allocations you plot which are the sectors so that's one uh, clearly but uh, it's a paid subscription right so uh, being a part of this field i think that's uh, one thing but otherwise uh, economist for example right uh, which is a, which is a fairly good magazine right which uh, gives you a good way for anybody to get uh, insights into uh, what's what's happening globally uh, and there are very good articles okay which talk about certain uh, themes right or it's not just about economics but it's also about certain themes or uh, or new technologies which are coming up which which gives you good insights of not only investing macroeconomics but uh, emerging technology trends so i think that's uh, i think a good uh, uh, magazine actually for anybody for any any person to really look at yeah uh, wonderful uh, mahesh thank you very much for making time for us i know we took a lot of time and we had a little bit of glitches and all that's fine but uh, very insightful uh, very thought provoking i love the way you articulated your system for picking stocks for various kinds of companies and uh, i i think this is going to be wonderful for the viewers yeah i uh, you know i thank you very much once again for the time you made for us uh, thank you all it was a pleasure interacting with you i think we covered a wide range of topics i think uh, and <laughs> not just me i think i think it is i have to have to really think at times right in terms of uh, uh get deeper into it so i think yeah, it was really a pleasure yeah and and i i guess you're truly surprised i didn't ask you was the outlook for the market because i think if you get this right the outlook is not that important you'll have but i think you know, yeah but I, but i think if you i mean one forget the outlook of the market but i think i think what i really believe is that i think uh, this is the time where it's uh, time for india to really really uh come of age and take center stage i think the next whatever 10 20 years if we we are the foundation has been laid for india to really become a big large uh, economic power a lot of things are falling in place uh, we've seen the 
whole reforms which we have done in the last seven years. I think that uh, is laying the foundation. Uh, we have huge uh, demographics, okay, which have a large working population, which can be a big advantage and can be also a big uh, being if you're able to engage them. But the way geopolitics are changing globally, I think India can be a large supplier to the world, right? I mean, we've seen uh, what's happened to China, right? And 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 I think the way India has adopted digital, I mean, India, uh, the adoption of digital has been at a very very fast pace. I mean, we are not only suppliers of IT workflow to the world. But in India also, we have seen that and that will help us to improve our productivity. And this is going to be the more digital age. All these factors put together, I think uh, you will see a very strong uh, growth for India. I mean, it might not be as strong as what we had saw in the earlier case because global growth is not going to be as strong, but relatively. And, and that will provide a lot of opportunities okay, for and, and in a lot of entrepreneurs. I think we've seen the whole startup ecosystem in India is also taken up uh, a big shape, which is good, okay? And, and there is a lot of capital. See, world, there is a lot of capital, but that lack of growth, right? So you have the capital, and this is in India where the growth is, right? So you can able to attract that capital and create jobs. So I think it's going to be a very exciting period uh, for India in the, in the next decade. Obviously, there has to be political stability, which is very important because a lot of this requires uh, driving from top in terms of policies, agendas, uh, we should be on course, but I think I have no doubt in my mind that India uh, can uh, uh, will be one of the fastest growing economies, and 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 it will be not late where you will be the third largest economy. I think that uh, should happen uh, in less than the next ten years. So if that happens, automatically markets will do well, right? Yep. The economy does, then companies will do well, the earnings will grow, and the markets uh, yeah. should do well. Yeah. And the companies will grow. And when you are identifying companies to buy, remember growth at reasonable price. Remember all that Mahesh has told you today when you're buying companies. So that's the message to the viewers. There's growth ahead, but don't buy growth at any price. Buy it at the right price. Don't buy quality at any price, right? You mentioned that also. So uh, follow the process. There's a tailwind, if I may say so. And you can ride it, ride it reasonably well and uh, good times ahead. Mahesh, thank you very much once again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour.